my mom told me I could go over to the neighbors who usually babysat me. I told my mom that she had a spider on her head. This year we were going to New York City. It's time for The Apple Seed, a show filled with all kinds of stories for you and your family. Sometimes a great story can help you find the words to express your thoughts and feelings. And we hope that in today's stories, you'll find something meaningful that will open up a great conversation between you and your loved ones. I'm your host, Sam Payne. Today on the show, we've got an hour of stories about underdogs. Humankind has always been inspired by underdog stories. I know I have. You have too, right? For thousands of years, we've repeated the story of the little shepherd boy, David, who took down the fearsome giant, Goliath. And there are other underdog stories we all know too, right? No matter how many times we've heard the story of Cinderella, for example. Our hearts break for Cinderella when her stepsisters head off to the ball without her. And we cheer for a determined kid named Rudy to make the fighting Irish football team. You're five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing, and you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. Oh, heck yeah, right? I mean, you want to stand up and cheer for something like that. I think these stories strike a nerve because we've all been in situations where the odds felt stacked against us. And when we root for an underdog in a story, we're really rooting for ourselves to overcome our own trials and troubles and challenges. So as you listen today, we hope that these stories will spark memories that you can share with the people you love about a time when you felt like the underdog, but you emerged victorious. I mean, who knows? Maybe a loved one needs to hear about your courage and perseverance to help them through a tough time. All right, let's get to those stories, shall we? First up, we've got a fractured fairy tale, really, from storyteller Donna Washington. Now, you know the story of the three little pigs, right? Now, this story takes us a few generations down the line from those original pigs. It's got a little bit of everything. A contest between three brothers, an underdog to cheer for, and, well, it's also got this. He said, um, who who are you? What are you doing? He said, we are the very first pig opera company. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's got that. And I'll tell you, when Donna Washington stepped into the Appleseed recording studio to record that story before our live audience, none of us saw the first pig opera company coming. Fractured fairy tales can be a real ball. And that's coming up in just a moment. And after that, we're excited to play for you the first episode in a new multi-part series we're cooking up in our secret lab. It's called Quentin Manning, Detective for Justice. And today, again, just the first episode for you. The next episode we'll bring you in next week's episode of The Appleseed. The story is all about a sixth grader named, you guessed it, Quentin Manning. And his obsession with the detective at the center of his favorite series of detective novels makes him something of an outcast, an underdog at Marlowe Middle School. But that doesn't stop him from seeking justice for his fellow students as the middle school's unofficial private detective. And in today's episode, some dastardly fiend has been letting the air out of all the bike tires at Marlowe Middle School. Luckily, Quentin Manning is on the case. We'll catch them. We will? Yes, we're detectives now. Oh, right. This is a mystery. The case of the flattened tires. Ha <laughs> ha! Like I said, it's the beginning of a multi-part mystery, and you won't want to miss it. The author of this series is none other than Bill Harley, the Grammy-winning storyteller and author and musician who is a longtime friend of the Appleseed. So today, we'll also bring you a conversation we had with Bill about the creation of the Quentin Manning series. So lots of great stuff today. Let's dive right in with Donna Washington. She's got a delightful fractured fairy tale to share with us, along with our terrific audience in the Appleseed Performance Studio. Let's head on in. Over the last year and a half, I have done stories I never thought I would do. We've been on Zoom, and I've been close up with cameras, and because of that, I've created stories that 
it wouldn't have occurred to me if I was, you know, on a stage far away from people. So I'm about to tell you a story that was created in this last year and a half, which I have never told to a live audience before. Meaning, I have no idea if it works. <laughs> because usually, you know, you, you let these things sort of run in the wild a little bit and they sort of change. So I have no idea. Uh, but I've told it a lot, but to cameras. So let's premiere this story, shall we? <laughs> and let's hope it works. Okay, I was uh, asked to do a fractured, uh, an entire uh, evening of fractured fairy tales but they wanted original ones. And because I was home and not touring, I thought, sure, I can do that. And then I, you know, after we signed the contracts, I thought, what did I just agree to do? <laughs> I, and then it took me, like, I don't know, three weeks of me going, I don't, I don't know that I want to do this. I like stories, I'm not in the mood. You, know, you ever had that cranky person who sits on your shoulder <laughs> and says, I don't want to do any. And then, as often happens, I was in the shower and I figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> I think showers are magical. I'm pretty sure they are. I solve a lot of problems in the shower. Maybe it's like the warm water heating. I don't know. Anyway, so this story is a fractured variant of two different stories. <clears throat> I know that most of you have heard the story of the three little pigs. I'm not gonna go over it, I'm sure you know. But what you might not know is that the third little pig who built her house of bricks eventually got married and had piglets and had to give the house to one of the piglets. And that piglet grew up in that brick house and got married. And that grandson got the house, one of them, and then, then it passed to the great-grandson until we came to the great-great-grandchildren of the pig who built the house of bricks. That's where we are. And there were three of them. And Papa Pig was getting older, and he had to give the house to one of his piglets, and he wasn't sure which one should have it. And he came up with this fantastic way to figure it out. Now, the three pigs, the oldest one was called Mo, who was a muscly one. And the second pig was called Bo. He's beautiful. <laughs> and the third pig, well, they didn't name that one for a while, but when they finally did, they did it because he was the most boring pig who ever lived. They called him Practical. <laughs> but Practical thought that the name Practical was impractical. So he just told everyone to call him Prack. So we have Mo, Bo, and Prack. And Papa Pig called the three of them together and said, one of you's gonna get the house. And Mo said, it's gonna be me, yeah. See, because Mo, he was fun. The muscly one liked to wrestle around all of his friends. They were always having a good time. They were always playing. People wanted to be with Mo. He was the life of the party. Yeah, give it to me. Oh, I deserve the house. Yeah, we have a party every night. And his friends were going, yeah. You know, they were like the hype men. Like, yeah, yeah, come. <laughs> and then there was Bo. Bo was an influencer before such things were real. <laughs> Bo had this beautiful black mane. And Bo had beautiful tusks that were intricately carved. And everybody wanted to be where Bo was because Bo always looked so good. And Bo said, no, I should have the house. <laughs> it will be wonderful. Can you just imagine the design? <laughs> no one asked Prack what he thought. Prack is the kind of person you go to a party and he wants to talk to you about math. <laughs> so, Papa Pig said, all right, this is how we're going to figure it out. Whoever can fill up this house can have it. And he gave each of the pigs ten haypennies, or hay pennies, because that's what the animals use, hay pennies. <laughs> Sorry, it's just what it is. And he said, whatever you can get with this to fill up the house. Well, Mo went 
first. He knew exactly what he was going to get. He, the muscly one, because he's the oldest, with all of his really buff and beautiful friends, they went to the feed store. And he slapped his 10 hay pennies down on the counter and he said, I need straw, straw. And the guy said, we don't have any straw. Took his hay pennies, left his friends. I'm going to take care of this. And off Mo set off down the way looking for someone to sell him straw. Well, it just so happened he met the great, great grandson of the dude who sold his great, great uncle the straw for the house in the first story. (laughs) And he slapped his 10 hay pennies down for that guy. Now that guy had a hay. He was still selling it. And he said, how much hay can I get for 10 hay pennies? And he said, wow, a lot. And so he said, deliver it outside my house. And he knew exactly where that was because, you know, he was in the other story. So (laughs) they brought all the hay. And Mo and all of his muscly friends started, they brought pitchforks, they were shoveling that hay into the house. Fill the house, fill the house, fill it up fine. Fill the house, fill the house, and it'll be mine. (laughs) I hope you got that because y'all have to sing it with me now. I'll help you again. Fill the house, fill the house, fill it up fine. Fill the house, fill the house, and it'll be mine. (laughs) Well, if Papa Pig had been there when they got all that hay in there, I'm sure Mo would have won the house. But Papa Pig apparently is a very busy pig. He was out doing something. By the time he got home, the hay had settled. And there was a good foot between the top of the roof at the highest point and the top of that hay. Oh, Mo was devastated. Papa Pig was a little concerned because now the house was full of hay. But Prack was there. Prack used that hay to do all sorts of things. Why, well, he stuffed mattresses, and he made hats, and mats, and shoes, and lawn furniture. <laughs> he made all these various things, and then he sold all of it. And he made way more than 10 hay pennies, I gotta tell you. He gave Papa Pig back his 10 hay pennies, you know. And Papa Pig didn't ask him what he did with the rest of the money, because at least they got all the, the hay out of the house. Well, that was Bo's turn. Bo said, <laughs> I know exactly what to do. He took his ten halfpennies down to Stephanie's, which is the animal equivalent of Michael's. <laughs> and he slapped his ten halfpennies down on the counter. There was a beautiful peacock behind the counter, and she said, "What do you want to do with that?" He said, "I need feathers. Feathers." Now. Peacocks make a great noise. And she had to do that because she didn't have enough feathers to cover 10 halfpennies. Peacock calls can be heard for about five miles. Peacocks from all over gathered. What do you need? Feathers! Her name was Stephanie, the one who was calling. The peacocks scattered throughout the, the, the whole area and brought feathers, piles and piles and piles of feathers. And then Mo and his influencer shoveled them into that brick house. Do you guys remember the little song? Mm-hmm. Fill it, fill the house, fill it up fine. Fill the house, fill the house, and it'll be mine. One more time. Fill the house, fill the house, fill it up fine. Fill the house, fill the house, and it'll be mine. And they got all those feathers in the house. And if Papa Pig had been there at that moment, surely Bo would have won the challenge. But he was busy doing Papa Pig things. And by the time he got home, the feathers had settled, and there was half a foot between the top of the house and the feathers. And of course, they had a house full of feathers, and Bo was devastated. And Prack rolled up his piggy sleeves <laughs> and proceeded to make all sorts of beautiful clothing and hats. And I'm told he made a peacock gown for Lady ba- ba- that she wore on stage. <laughs> And she paid an undisclosed amount of halfpennies for it. 
At the end of it all, when all the feathers are taken care of, he gave Papa Pig his ten halfpennies back. He kept the residual, and now it was his turn to try to fill the house. And nobody thought he could do it. I mean, honestly, Mo was muscly, and he had this great idea. And Bo, Bo was beautiful. He could make anybody do anything. He couldn't do it. What was Pratt going to do? Get in the middle of the house and yell numbers at people? So Pratt took his ten halfpennies, and he went looking for the perfect thing to fill the house. Off he went and walked and walked until he bumped into the weirdest thing he'd ever seen. There were 30 pigs hanging out in a meadow. They were going, me, 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 me. He got a little closer. He said, excuse me. And this amazing pig in a big white wig said, yes. He said, um, who, who are you? What are you doing? He said, we are the very first pig opera company. <laughs> and we have been practicing our opera for weeks. But we can't find anywhere to play. Prax said, I think I know where you could play. He gave the man ten halfpennies. The man said, ten halfpennies? Yes. Where do you want us? He gave him the address. I'll see you this evening. And then he went and invited all of his neighbors to come to the pig opera. Now, nobody had any idea what a pig opera was. But it was different. And they thought, well, why not? So all the people came, and then the opera company arrived. They sat up. Now, they were wearing every kind of costume you could think of. Some of them were in medieval dress. Some of them were in business suits. Some of them were wearing lederhosen. I mean, it was amazing. It was everything you could imagine. And they all warmed up. Well, it turns out that the way the pig opera works is that everybody sings their favorite song at the same time as loud as possible, continuously. And they were so excited, the audience was allowed to sing as well. I mean, it got really loud and rambunctious often there. People jumping up and singing. Now, Papa Pig, like I said, you know, he was out, he came in, and the opera company was in full swing. And now I would like for us to recreate the pig opera here and now. Are you ready? I hope you've all yeah. picked a song. <clears throat> it does not matter which key you use. <laughs> Here we go. One, two, three. On top of spaghetti, all covered in cheese. I lost my poor meatball when somebody sneezed. It was amazing. <laughs> You are amazing. Give yourselves a hand. Well done! <laughs> Papa Pig stood in the doorway in amazement. What is going on in here? <sighs> Prack gathered Mo and Bo, and they walked through that entire house. And no matter where they were, they could hear laughing, and they could hear singing, and they could hear the stomping of lots of different kinds of hooved feet. <laughs> And it was fun. And when it was over, Mo and Bo agreed that Prack had won the house. He'd filled it with song. And he'd filled it with laughter. And he'd filled it with their friends. He had filled that entire house with their community. And there's nothing bigger than that. When people share stories and laugh and hold on to each other and remember the things that are good about everyone around them and celebrate the things that are different but still make us one. That is what community is. And that is what brings us together. And that is how Prack won the house. Donna Washington with a fractured fairy tale about three little pigs. Just like Prack filled the house with fun and laughter, 
We hope that story brought some joy into your home. And in just a moment, a little talk back with friends about that story, followed by the first episode of a new multi-part series, Quentin Manning, Detective for Justice. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. A moment ago, it was our pleasure to join Donna Washington in the Appleseed studio for a fractured fairy tale based on the story of the three little pigs. It's a story that uh, Donna Washington uh, came up with during the pandemic. In fact, that recording uh, was the first time she had performed it in front of a live audience, and it was a real pleasure to be there for that. (laughs) I'm joined around the desk to talk a little bit about that story by a couple of our Appleseed family members, one of our assistant producers, Lacey Olson. Lacey, thanks for joining me. Good to be here. And Dr. Brian Tanner, one of our producers. Brian, thanks for joining me. Hey, it's great to be here. Brian, where does a story like that take you? Well, I I like stories like this where the the underdog wins out because they are just inherently kind and decent, mm, you know, yeah. uh, rather than like they have some flashy ability or something. And, and I was thinking about the book and and various movies of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, where you've yeah. got this, th- this whole colorful array of children from all over the world with big, bright personalities. And next to them, Charlie's just kind of a... You know, <laughs> wah, wah, you know like very normal boy, but at the at the end of the day, because of his kindness, because he's not as outlandish, and because uh, because of his integrity, he's he's the one who who ends up with the prize. You know, and I mm-hmm. I love stories like that where, uh, just like Prack in this story, it's just he he says, you know, instead of just doing something splashy myself, I'm going to make space for the people around me and my for, for my friends and family. And I just think that's a really beautiful place for a story to go. There's such a wonderful moment in the Gene Wilder, Charlie and the Chocolate My favorite, film, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the The so shines a good deed in a weary world, right? Yeah. That, that, mm-hmm. that paraphrase of, of Shakespeare. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that, that, comes, that comes back to me when I, th- when I think, gosh, sometimes all I, can, all I can do right now is a kindly deed. Yeah. I can always choose to do that. Yeah. I mean, so so often we encounter a story, a hero story, mm-hmm. in in which the biggest and strongest is the winner. I don't feel like the biggest and strongest. You know, I feel like if I have virtues, they're not that I'm big and strong, but I can decide to be nice, right? Well, the listeners can't see, but I'm pretty big and strong. <laughs> <laughs> you know. How about you, Lacey? I, I don't mean to oh, so no, quickly yeah. get off of that comment. <laughs> uh, yes, Brian, thank you. Um, Lacey, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't Where? even like get my thoughts out anymore. <laughs> yes, Brian is big and strong. Yeah, that's will right. confirm. Th- yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys. Yeah, I'm the overdog. So, <laughs> oh, but no, just to just to piggyback that. Can I just say I think everybody should have a pig opera at some point. Like mm. I think sitting oh, yeah. in a room with all of my friends, just all of us singing our favorite songs out loud at any key. <laughs> I think that'd be the funnest time. But I think it does roll back into that idea of you know, throughout this story, his brothers Bo and Mo and they're trying to like enhance their big qualities and like show off what they can do to be the biggest and the best. Yeah. And Prack is just such a reasonable person, you know, being practical. Yeah. And I love that he just does the most simple thing. He just invites people into his house. They just all sing songs. And like, you know, I feel like everybody gets a little bit of oh my gosh, what over-the-top thing can I do? What big notion can I make to make an impact on whatever is going on, right? Sure. And yeah. most yeah. of the time, it's get a room of people, sing songs together, <laughs> yeah. tell stories, just yeah. hang out. Yeah. I, I mean, it's probably important to say there's nothing wrong with ambition, right? There's yeah. nothing oh, wrong no. with wanting no. to do heroic-sized things, right? But you can decide to be reasonable Every moment of every day, you can decide to be kind. Every moment of every day, you know, I, the, there there are there are opportunities that the, the opportunities for us to to exhibit the kinds of behaviors that win the day in some of these underdog stories is before us always. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And for another sure. thing that I really like is that 
when Bo and Mo are making these big grand gestures, it's like who comes in and quietly cleans up the mess? Yeah. It, it's Prack. You know, they just kind of <laughs> left the mess and, and went on. <laughs> you know, and he doesn't do it with any fanfare like, oh, look at me. You know, I, yeah. I did all these things. But it's just, just kind of quietly and decently doing that. And I admire yeah. that. Yeah, it's kind of that integrity thing of like what would you do if no one was watching you? Yeah. Just like, right. mm-hmm. you know, doing the right thing just because you know it's right. And it's a kind thing to do. Yeah. yeah. I like that. And I think there's a temptation sometimes to need fanfare to tell you that you've done a good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And and if there's a if there's a I think it's a super desirable quality to be the kind of person that can do the right thing, know you've done the right thing, and for that to be enough. Because so yeah. so so often in your life, the things that you do, the good things that you do are not met with with any kind of fanfare. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. And if you need that. That's that's tough. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and I think sometimes I, I, I sometimes I struggle with that. You know, thinking I, I, is it enough that I that I did the thing that I thought to be right, and is that enough? You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a point though where you know it is it is good to tell people that you recognize that they are trying and that they're yeah. doing yeah. good things. You know, sometimes everybody needs a little bit of encouragement to keep doing those things, and I think there's a little bit of something that tells us that we should be that person to reach out and to be the person to let others know that we recognize those things yeah. because yeah. it'll come back to us. Mm-hmm. Yep. Lacey, I think you're a good person. Oh, thank you. Brian, <laughs> I think you're big and strong. <laughs> <laughs> you, you aren't wrong. <laughs> but that's got to be enough. <laughs> well, so fun to listen to that story and so fun to chat about it with Lacey and Brian It's brought back a memory for me that I'd like to share as today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. This is just a tiny little story. It's the story of a trip. Sometimes when I'm out on the road telling stories and the destination is a cool place, some of my family will go with me. You know how it is, a work vacation. And so it was that we were traveling in Appalachia, mostly Tennessee, but also North Carolina, too. A lot of miles on the car we had rented at the airport. And that car took us to the gigs where we told stories and sang songs and watched fireflies every night for a week. Now, other than the work stuff, where our schedule is set by the folks for whom I'm telling stories and singing songs, my wife Suzanne is kind of the leader on a trip like this. She's the one who did the research on good places to eat, interesting places to visit, stuff like that. And she's really, really great at it. Our trip is filled to the rafters with fun stuff to do, great food. It's a kick traveling with Suzanne and fun traveling with our daughter Leah, too, who, as it turns out, has never seen fireflies before this trip. We don't have them in the part of the country where we live. And it's her, Leah, driving the nightly necessity of making time in whatever else we're doing and finding a field where we can watch fireflies. And it really is incredible. Anyway, as you might imagine, on a road trip like that, the car was getting pretty full of, well, of snacks. Next to Leah's seat in the back of the car, there's a big bag of pretzels and some tortilla chips, a plastic container full of veggie sticks, a thing full of hummus. There's a bag of popcorn back there, too. There's even an enormous donut in wax paper from Troyer's, the incredible donut and pretzel place just outside of Jonesboro, Tennessee. We stopped for those donuts on the last day of our trip on our way back to the airport, and Well, those things just look and smell so darn good that we bought one more than we could eat, as it turns out. So premium treats, for sure, are all back there. And of course, one of the things we have to do at the end of the trip is return the car to the rental place, and we're in a little bit of a hurry. Seems like the last things in a trip like that always take just a little bit longer than you think they will. And in the rough and tumble of getting back to the airport in time, the only thing that's worrying us, actually, when we stop to gas up the car before returning it, is all those snacks. We're kind of kicking ourselves for letting that get away from us over the course of the trip. And we don't want to throw stuff away. We don't want to just waste stuff. But then sitting at the gas station, even as we're trying to figure out what to do, we see our daughter, Leah, approach the only other person getting gas at that gas station at that moment. Leah waves to get her attention and says, excuse me, this may be a little weird, but might you guys want some snacks? 
we got to get to the airport, and we've been on a trip, and we have all these extra snacks. Pretzels and tortilla chips and popcorn and veggies and hummus and stuff. Is that too weird? And the woman with whom Leo was talking turned to her car and said to her kids, what do you say, guys? Do we want some snacks? And the kids said, yeah, and everybody smiled. And it took us about 15 seconds to make the snack handoff, and off we went. I don't know if that particular solution would have occurred to Suzanne or to me. Seems like there are too many barriers. We'd wonder if the person would think us condescending to make an offer of secondhand snacks. We'd allow ourselves to imagine that taking a bunch of snacks from strangers is something a reasonable person would avoid and we wouldn't offer. We'd think and think all sorts of things that would talk us right out of doing what Leah did. But Leah, she just did it. And it worked out great. Problem solved. Everyone at the gas station went home happy. And off we went to the airport. Well... It wasn't my wife and it wasn't me that came up with the solution. It was our daughter. In some ways, some would say, the least of us. I mean, to be clear, we don't think her as the least of us. We know her well enough to know better, but some might. The world is filled with stories of the least of us figuring out the solution to the problem, no matter how small. And for sure, how to effectively manage the disposition of too many snacks is a pretty small problem in the vast world of problems. I get that. But one thing's for sure. We all feel least sometimes, don't we? It's the way of things. And feeling least sometimes shuts our mouths, stills our hands, when really, even as least as we feel, we might be exactly the solution a problem needs. Good thing there are enough stories, if we keep track of them, of the least of us figuring it out. This one is just a tiny one, but I'm going to keep it in my pocket for when I need it. Chances are, that'll be soon and often. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family right when you need it on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. It has been such a pleasure to chat about Donna Washington's fractured fairy tale about three pigs with Lacey Olson and Brian Tanner. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Lots more coming up on the Appleseed. In an hour of the Appleseed that has already contained a terrific story from Donna Washington, a fractured fairy tale about three pigs, we're about to bring you a real surprise. Uh, We're super excited about this. Over the last little while on the Appleseed, you may have heard other audio dramas cooked up in the secret Appleseed Lab. And we've got something really special for you today. Uh, It's Quentin Manning, Detective for Justice, uh, the first part in a series of mysteries with Quentin Manning at the center of it. They're written by the wonderful storyteller Bill Harley. And Bill joins us from his home to talk just a little bit about what's to come on Quentin Manning. Bill, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. I'm I'm so happy that we're finally here where uh, people get to hear what we've been working on. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Quentin Manning. I I I love where this guy comes from. Yeah, so well the I mean the the thumbnail sketch is Quentin is in middle school. Yeah. Um he's at Marlowe Middle School and uh he's in 6th grade. So this is his first year and he is a total romantic <laughs> and he's in love with a this whole series of detective novels. So he decides that he's going to be a detective in the middle school. And of course he needs an assistant. And so he enlists uh, his friend Sam Turnquist. And Sam's major concern is where is my next meal coming from? (laughs) So that's kind of what's driving him. And what's driving Quentin is this notion, this romantic notion of justice, (laughs) that somehow he's going to make the world safer for all of us. And he's really kind of a a classic fool. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, but Um, he has a he has a vision of the world, and he doesn't really care if if the rest of the world agrees with him. So that's which is the reason he's doing it, and also causes a lot of mayhem and problems. As you became acquainted with Quentin, as 
Quentin's creator, right? Are there things that you've learned from Quentin? Things that you, things that as Quentin unfolded before you, you thought, good heavens, that's something that I can take with me in my, in my, in my life. In the long run, if we you get through all these episodes, you're going to find that Quentin's heart is what drives the story. Yeah. And, and, and people are always teasing him about it. But in the end, uh, I think what I'm saying in this is what else do you have other than that, mm. at trying to be true to what you think is right? Um, and that is really kind of what wins the day, despite all the mayhem. You don't mind if someone fails. You want them to keep trying and for a good reason. And this is this is who Quentin is, um, that he's he's just going to keep going even when things are falling apart around him. <laughs> <laughs> and what we're about to hear is the first part of the first Quentin Manning mystery. And, and this mystery is going to unfold over two episodes of The Appleseed. But it really is just the beginning. Set up for us this mystery and tell us just a tiny bit about some of the mysteries to come. This one has to do with the fact that he comes out at the end of the day and find out that the tires on all the bikes in the behind the school have been flattened. <laughs> and uh, he says, we've got a mystery. And Sam is like, what's the mystery? I don't, I don't get it. So uh, that's the question that's posed. And I, every... Every uh, episode, there is something that they're after. There's, there's one where uh, these trading cards have been confiscated by the vice principal, and Quentin <laughs> decides that they shouldn't have been, and so he's going to get them back. Uh, so one after another, there's all these things that could happen at a middle school. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're excited to bring it to you. This is part one of Quentin Manning, Detective for Justice, The Case of the Flattened Tires, written by Bill Harley, brought to life in the Appleseed Secret Lab. And we're excited to bring it to you right now. The name is Manning, Quentin Manning. I'm in sixth grade at Marlowe Middle School. You're about to hear an important moment in the annals of crime detection. It's when I accepted my calling. I owe it all to Deke Benchley and his creator, Rip Sturgeon. Of course, I won't spoil the mystery, only to say that Deke Benchley shows his prowess in discovering the plans of the evil house renovator. Quentin. Many consider the case of the cursed candelabra the finest of the Deke Benchley series. Quentin, thank you. One wonders how important this book is in showing Benchley's commitment to justice and protecting the earth and all its creatures. But structurally, and for all it shows us... Quentin. Yes? Enough. <laughs> I think we've all heard enough. Thank you, Mrs. Turbot. Just a few conclusions. I meant you, Quentin. <laughs> That's all for today. We'll finish the book reports tomorrow. Hey, Quentin. Deke Bentley's a loser. Yeah, a bozo. Actually, Jimmy and Timmy, many consider him a genius. Right, a genius. Like you. Like you. A genius. <laughs> Quentin Manning, detective, detective for dummies. <laughs> yeah, for dummies. <laughs> Quentin, don't argue with the Burmick twins. You can never win. My best friend and confidant, Sam Turnquist. You're right, Sam. They've been like this since kindergarten. Let's go to lunch. They're serving tater tots. Uh, Quentin. Yes, Mrs. Turbot? Do you think you might do your next book report on something other than the Deke Benchley series? Why would I do that? Just to expand your horizons a little. Quentin, they only make so many tater tots each day. But so... these are the best books in print about the best detective written by the best author, Rip Sturgeon. Look how many books he's written. Quentin, it's not clear to me that Rip Sturgeon is really the author. What do you mean? Of course he is. He's written all of the Deke Benchley books. I know it says that, but sometimes with a series, there are a number of writers who work on the books. Rip Sturgeon might just be a pen name for... That may be for other series, but not this one. Rip Sturgeon is highly respected. It says so on the back of the book. Look... It might be interesting to do a little research on... I have written to Mr. Sturgeon many times. 
I'm quite sure Quentin. that the tater tots are waiting for me. I just think. Never mind. Thanks for your interest, Mrs. Turbot. Yeah, tater tot time. I ignored Mrs. Turbot's well-meant objections, but the Burmick's suggestion that I was some kind of detective reverberated in my head. I couldn't get my mind off it. Maybe I was some kind of detective. Maybe a detective was just what Marlowe Middle School needed. A detective for justice. Tater tots. Sam, I've been thinking. Not unusual for you. Would you be interested in sharing some of your tater tots? May I? Sure. Thanks. I think we're ready. Ready for what? I think this school needs a detective. A what? A detective. Like Deke Benchley, to solve mysteries in school. First of all, Deke Benchley is just a story. Second, the school can barely pay for librarians. Forget detectives. And third, what mysteries? We can be the detectives. Why are you using the word we? I need an assistant. Every great detective has an assistant who offers abetment. Abetment? He gives him bedment? Abetment. It means help. Well, that's a ridiculous word. My grandmother says never use a big word when a little word will do. What's your grandmother got to do with this? She's a famous writer. Really? Well, as soon as her memoir is published, she will be. It's already 3,000 pages long. My favorite part is where she encounters the giant squid. I've read all 46 Deke Benchley books and know everything about being a detective. But I need an assistant, like Deke Benchley's assistant, Frank. I think you would make an excellent assistant detective. Really? No one's ever told me I'd make a great assistant detective. What do I have to do? Just help me out. Do I get paid for it? Probably not. Detectives for justice don't worry about money. Although, there are other types of rewards. Food? Well, at the end of the case of the Royal Robbers, book number 36, Deke Benchley was invited by the King of Petronia to a large banquet. Was Frank invited? Sam, you're asking trivial questions. Do you want to be my assistant or not? Okay, as long as you invite me to the banquet. There isn't one. But if there is one, you have to invite me. Then I'll be your assistant. Fine, I'll meet you at the bike rack after school. Wait a minute, I take the bus. If I miss it, I'll be late for my snack. My grandmother makes great snacks. Sam, I need your help. We'll compare notes on the ride home. I don't have a bike. You can walk along beside me. I'll miss my snack. Okay, you can take the bus home after we compare notes. About what? To see if we found any mysteries. Keep your eyes open. But if I miss the bus, I won't get... I'll make sure you get on the bus. Okay, I'm in. Great. See you after school. Okay, Chief. Chief? You're the head detective, and I'm the assistant. I call you Chief. See you, Chief. Not a perfect choice for assistant, but I thought with a little training, Sam would fit the bill. Ah, where is he? I can't miss the bus. Quentin, finally. I have no notes, I found no mystery. I have to go, see ya. Wait, let's make a plan. Well, my plan is to get on the bus and go home in time for a snack. All right, I didn't find a mystery either. I, hey, wait, look at this. My tires are flat. Yeah, I noticed that. In fact, all the tires are flat. How did you get to school on a flat tire? It was full this morning. Sam, we've got our first mystery. Really? What is it? Sam, look in front of you. Bikes with flat tires? Somebody flattened them. Who? That's what I mean. It's a mystery. We don't know who did it. I sure hope someone finds that creep. What a low down dirty Sam, we will find them. Them? I suspect Jimmy and Timmy Burmick. This is the kind of thing they might do. Really? Really. And we'll catch them. We will? Yes, we're detectives now. Oh, right. This is a mystery. The case of the flattened tires. Great, we've got a mystery. I think I can still make my... Sorry, Sam. I guess we'll both have to walk home. We can talk about the case. Quentin, you live in the opposite direction. All right, you can walk home. Let's plan to be here early. Hey, see you tomorrow. Uh-oh. What? That girl. She's very scary. Hey, look at my tire. Lucky for her, we're here to help. Help her? She doesn't need help. 
No one messes with her. If I find out who did this. Excuse me. Bad idea. Don't talk to her. Do you know anything about this? Actually, I do. I was just investigating. Investigating? What do you mean? Well, my assistant and I are investigating the crime scene so we can find the perpetrators. What? Like you're some kind of detectives or something? Precisely. Um, I hate to inform you, but you're sixth graders. And detectives. You've got to be kidding. I don't kid about crime. Ugh. You're Sam Turnquist, right? You're in my math class. Um, yeah, sort of. And who are you? Quentin Manning, detective for justice. At your service. May I ask your name, ma'am? Ma'am? My name is Sydney Plum. Nice to meet you. Don't worry. I'll get to the bottom of this. Well, while you guys investigate, I'm gonna go tell my mom. I think we can take care of this. No need to involve parents. Maybe you don't know who my mom is. I guess her name is Mrs. Plum. Mrs. Plum? Your mom is Mrs. Plum? Sam, it makes sense her mother's name is Mrs. Plum. Her last name is Plum, so there's a very good chance her mother's name is Plum. That's not what I mean. It's THE Mrs. Plum. Right. Sam, Plum is not an uncommon name. There may be hundreds, even thousands. So there's no THE Mrs. Plum. As a matter of fact, I know of another Mrs. Plum who works right here at the school. That's what I'm saying. THE Mrs. Plum. You probably know her too. She's the custodian. You know, the one that threatened to tie the boys up by their ankles if they used magic markers on the walls? Quentin. To my mind, she's too severe. And you know how they say that custodians always smell like disinfectant? Whew. Boy, you can really smell her coming. Quentin! It's true! That's what I'm saying. Her mom is that Mrs. Plum. I've never really had any interactions. Oh, wait! The Mrs. Plum! That's what I'm saying. Oh, oh, what a coincidence. Anything else to add about my mom? No, ma'am. So, I'll just go tell my mom about it, if that's all right with you. That's perfect. Thanks. Yes, yes, uh, and an excellent idea. Tell her I'll be interviewing her tomorrow. I'll do that. Well, that was productive. It was? We've got someone we can ask for information. Let's meet here tomorrow morning at 7.45. 7.45? Are you kidding? The buses don't even get here until 8. I know, but this case requires a stakeout. A what? A stakeout. Deke Benchley does it all the time. But I won't be here. The bus gets here at 8. Have your mom bring you. But that means getting up even earlier. My mom has to be at her job at 7.30, and my grandmother doesn't drive. Sam, a good detective has to give up creature comforts for a case. Whatever creature comforts are, I don't think I want to give them up, and I'm only an assistant. You won't regret it. Wait until we solve our first case. Think of all the people we will help. You'll be proud. There better be a banquet. Tomorrow morning, 7.45. Other than the little mix-up about Mrs. Plum, things were going great. I had an assistant and a case, and I had my suspicions about who the culprits might be. When it came to mayhem, it was always possible the Burmix might be involved. On my walk home, I decided to write to Rip Sturgeon, telling him about my detective agency and the new case. To Rip Sturgeon. Care of Broadswipe Books, New York City. Dear Mr. Sturgeon, I am happy to inform you that, influenced by your portrayal of Deke Benchley, I have gone into business as a detective for justice. We, and I include my recently retained assistant, Sam Turnquist, are already investigating an important case. I have also recently noticed that in the case of the Phantom Park Ranger, book number 12, that you have misspelled Deke Benchley's office manager's name. The word Marigold is spelled without an I in the first syllable. Was that an intentional or an editorial oversight? I eagerly await your reply. Sincerely, Quentin Manning, Detective for Justice. Oh, P.S. My language arts teacher questioned your existence. I did not laugh at her ridiculous suggestion, but assured her that you were a living, breathing author. And so it was time to set the trap. I believed the only question was what we would do with the tire flatteners once they were caught. But my well-laid plans hit some unexpected complications. Until next time, 
This is your humble servant, Quentin Manning, detective for justice. <laughs> Quentin Manning, detective for justice in part one of the case of the flattened tires. And I've been listening to it, not only with you, but also with Bill Harley, who created Quentin Manning. The wonderful storyteller joins us from his home. Bill, uh, Quentin Manning, part one. <laughs> yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's always amazing because this is like, you know, you have an idea in your head. And most of them stay there or they, they don't get out of the office or they yeah. don't get out of the house. You know, yeah. Debbie says, no, not that one. So <laughs> I feel like this one has finally escaped somehow. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I love listening to it. You know, and I always say, like, everybody's good when it's easy to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, we find out who someone is when things go wrong. Um, and so time and time again, Quentin is put in this position when he has to make a choice between one thing or another. And sometimes his choices are infuriating, but after you understand who Quentin is, they make perfect sense and they only reinforce, um, who he is. So really, um, as, as wild and nutty as it is, it's also kind of an examination about who we are as people. Sure. At least I hope so. Yeah. As it goes on, the... The relation between the relationship between Quentin and Sam is really what's driving yeah. this. They have this, you know, this pattern that's going back and forth that I hope kind of aligns with all those kind of famous kind of bickering comic duos that we've seen over the years. And I, that's who I want Quentin and Sam to be. <laughs> well, it was sure fun listening to part one, part two of the case of the flattened tires coming up on next week's episode of The Appleseed. And uh, what a pleasure. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Sam. I'm just happy to be here with you. It's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on The Appleseed, where great stories can change your family's world. Before we go, we wanted to say thank you to those of you who have taken the time to send an email to the show or to leave us a thoughtful review on your favorite podcast platform. A listener said, The Appleseed is such a great podcast that our whole family loves storytelling, great tales from all walks of life, and always great family entertainment. Would highly recommend this show to anyone who likes a good story. I can't tell you how thankful we are for that recommendation. Thanks so much. If you like the show, feel free to leave us a review or rate us. That helps other people find The Appleseed. And, of course, you can also send us a note by email at theappleseed at byu.edu. We love to share the notes that people share with us. And who knows, we might just read yours on the show. We're pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU radio family of programs. And you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.